Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. And now to introduce Patrick Kalina is Chris LaGuardia. I serve on the chair of the uh, Parish Art Museum's Landscape Pleasures Steering Committee, and I just want to thank everyone here that helps make that happen. Um, I'm proud to say that I think I've been to almost all of the 37 Landscape Pleasures weekends, and I'm looking forward to the next one, and we'll start in January planning for that uh, this year, so um, it's a weekend of landscape, and I just, I love it. Our next speaker is an immensely talented fellow, Patrick Kalina. Patrick is a landscape designer, horticulturist, and a photographer, award-winning in all aspects. He has a design and consulting firm that um, does work all over the country. His use of plants and materials in a sophisticated way places his work at a very high level. Um, prior to his firm, he worked as a horticultural and maintenance uh, founder of New York City's High Line. The High Line is just an amazing place. It's been a big inspiration to our firm, the work that was done there, and uh, has really raised the level and conscious of planting design. Right after that, uh, Patrick worked at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, where he was in charge of maintenance and research. Prior to that, at Rutgers University, where he was in charge of the gardens there. Patrick is an avid lecturer, all aspects about landscape, and I think we're in for a really good show. So please welcome Patrick Kalina. Thank you, Chris. Good morning. This is um, my second live post-COVID lecture. The first one was in Columbus, Ohio, and it was at 7.45 a.m. <laughs> so this is slightly better, right? Thanks for coming out. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, dynamic landscapes in the sense that uh, the, the, both their inspiration and the technique der are derived directly from dynamic ecological forces that are inherent either in the landscapes themselves or in the plants or in some combination thereof. Um, but as we're talking about the, the concept of American landscape, you think about really it's, an, it's inherited from European traditions and in many cases at that time, it was sort of operating with this idea of the picturesque. So here is my park in Brooklyn, Prospect Park, um, Olmsted Vox design, and then enhanced later on that Beaux-Arts entry there was um, uh, McKinney and White. But this idea that you have this pastoral landscape that gives you a sense of kind of a rural feel in the middle of the city. But I think what, what's challenging a lot of times when we're talking about design is to get people beyond the idea that a landscape is a fixed thing, right? An inert thing, a thing that you look at with the view. This is in the collection here yesterday. I mean, I think landscapes can take all sorts of forms. I'm really intrigued by this piece. But generally speaking, we're talking about an, a, a living, kind of a living, rolling, evolving space that has many features that we'll get into beyond the aesthetic, right? So the idea, I think we're still challenging with projects is that plants aren't things that are just sit on a shelf until you're ready for them whenever you want them and they're not gonna go, you know, any which plant you want is not gonna go where you wanna put it necessarily. Um, they're not hats, right? I was in Hudson for a project meeting so all these little gadgets for sale here on the street. So you, you don't see something that you like roll up and get, roll up on it and then say, okay, I'm gonna make this you know, a, a key piece of what I'm working on. We're really dealing, living in this sort of real world of succession. So in this case, you have, uh, this is a rural uh, landscape in uh, western, western New Jersey 
and you have these meadow grasses here, Indian grass in the foreground, and then the lawn. And the difference between the path and the meadow is the mower. So, and if you dig into that meadow, you'll find uh, sort of the, the elements of open field succession, the early pioneers, like apples or cherries, that'll eventually give way to whatever's in the, in the woodland surrounding it, because it knows in its DNA, before it was cleared for agricultural purposes, that it was a forest, right? And so we're making these sort of dynamic herbaceous landscapes. We're essentially trapping, uh, we're trapping the, the landscape in a point of succession, right? With, with an annual cut, usually. So this is outside here. And when you're doing these meadows, or in the Midwest, if you're doing prairies, you are, you have to, you're dealing with um, different forces, okay? So in, the, in our eastern landscapes, our warm season grasses are so competitive that there's very few things that really stand up to them. So this is outside now, there's asters coming up if you're, if you're walking around out there. But there are also little pioneers like that cherry that want to make their way up. So in our eastern landscapes, we have the goldenrods and the, and the milkweeds and, and asters and thistle. Um, those are things that can stand up to warm season grasses more successfully. So if we're going to do something that's more uh, complex, we have to take, take on a different approach. So we'll get into that. Um, I'm only talking about a specific part of a specific type of landscape here. I'm not, you know, critiquing any other work or any other style or, you know, we saw a lot of um, sort of classic European formal work in Debbie's talk. So, but I am talking about the, you know, lessons that we learn over time, right? So the one lesson that we learn over time that the, the grasses that were vogue uh, at, during the, you know, the Roman Sweden and, and the early um, use of this sort of new American landscape were largely exotic and in many cases challenging for, for the landscape, right? So, so the penicetums of the world, which is just right next door, um, have, have become weedy and miscanthus. So as we're kind of developing these palettes, we want to be sort of more conscious of, of the way they impact the environment. And then this, you know, this is an ongoing epidemic, right? This sort of the bare ground um, urban landscape. I think we take for granted sometimes that these landscapes, even though they're institutional or, or municipal, are our ecology, right? Or in, in this case, an absence of that. And then we have the, you know, the mulch epidemic, which is, I, you know, I've been talking about this for 25 years, it's never <laughs> with, no, with no success whatsoever, you know, there you go. Um, mulch is not a ground cover, let me just say that. This is largely recycled pallets and, and painted, you know, little colors. So we're talking about real ecological function and hoping to get that dynamic uh, ground plane to knit and so when, it, when those plants meet each other, that becomes a functioning system. And people are trying. You know, on, on the right-hand side, there's a switchcraft span that's down in, in um, Arlington, Virginia. And on the left-hand side, there's nothing wrong with the grasses, Sporobolus and Deschampsia, but uh, just not enough of them. And, you know, I, I, this, I know this is nobody here because this is New Jersey, so I know we're not, uh, we're not offending anyone. So, um, but this little parade of tortured trolls that exists all over in front of these huge houses uh, is not what we're going to be talking about today. And even like sort of larger commissions in Love Park, you know, the, the, this is in Philly, a lot of, you know, time went into the sort of the engineering of this space and maybe not so much time on the planting. So it's not just a matter of having plants and, you know, there's lots of grasses and perennials. It's which ones, how are they grown, where are they going, and how are they maintained? 
Um, I work with, I have a lot of different types of projects. I work with, uh, sometimes directly to a client, I work with architects, I work with landscape architects. And what we do sometimes are, are rectifying drawings in this planning process. So this is with an architectural firm here on the left. And to sort of re-spacing some of the things. So what they actually wanted against the building was that cedar, right? So that cedar's at another place. But, but this, this idea of scale is something that, um, that we really need to pay attention to because it's not just, not just the choice, it's the choice over time, right? It's not a single moment. Uh, this is looking down at uh, 14th Street in the High Line, um, sort of taking care of, sort of spacing things and selecting things with an idea to how they're going to evolve beyond uh, plan view. And again, municipalities are trying, this is outside of Philly, uh, or in, actually in, in part of Philadelphia, where they have these detention basins uh, outside the water station. So ecological function, stormwater management, green infrastructure, these are all now part of this sort of landscape world. Uh, I worked on this one when I was vice president of EBG. Uh, this is the uh, Weissman Freddy designed uh, entry pavilions and is a green roof that spans the two structures. And the entry beds are actually detention basins that are managing the, the stormwater from the, the parking lot that's shared with the Brooklyn Museum. So there's Amsonia in there and a mix of grasses and um, Nyssa or, or black gum. So when, I, when we first started, the Eastern Parkway it was during a large capital phase. So the Eastern Parkway entry was, was the first project I had. And uh, it was large, you know, this is largely a bare space. And the idea was to try to take aspects of the collection and reach out to the community with them. So they didn't have to come in the gates to see the plants, right? So within the, the advantage of working with that herbaceous uh, suite is that within a year, this was one year later, right? There was enough there to, to kind of hold the space, right? And so regardless of the season, we had this idea that aspects of the collection, including some of the, the gardens um, selected magnolias, that's Magnolia Lois uh, in, the, in the lower corner, you know, people might be enticed to want to learn more about what was inside the gates. So it doesn't, it's not, what I'm talking about today is not um, meant to eliminate aspects of collections, right? There's a beautiful a collection of flowering cherries there. This is my favorite. This is Ukon, which is uh, like sort of a green yellow. Um, so I, all of the, the, the quince, you know, I'm, I'm great with all of this. I'm really more talking about as we get into sort of larger landscapes that we don't, sort of fall victim to the vagaries of the marketplace, right? So I was at a, a garden center, a pretty good one, in Maine, and there were nine cultivars of nine bark, nine. There's just a few of them, the leaves that picked on that one day. Um, here's, whoops, sorry. Here's a species in flower, and then after the flower goes, the little calyxes stick around, they turn red, it's pretty showy. Pretty durable native plant, not, not, you know, nothing fancy about this one. But it does have a, a role to play you know, the, the novelty is what we're pushing back on sometimes. Like, what is the performance or the value of those plants really, ultimately? I'm not familiar with this one until I saw it this spring. This is somebody selected a button bush uh, variety because the, the buttons are pink. Okay, I mean, if, if, if that gets people interested in the species, so be it. But it, it really has to function because the, the point about all of these plants is they begin to interact with your environment the moment they're set on the ground. Okay, they're not, before they're even in, this is a pot sitting on the, on the ground waiting to be planted and it's already entertaining pollinators. So we, we, the, the value of these sort of diverse, sort of sensitive plantings are the benefits are stacked. You get 
obviously you get this aesthetic component, sure, but then you also get ecological services like you know, food and pollination and uh, water filtration, stormwater management, air quality, all of those things come from that same initiative. And when the marketplace cuts loose, it can have serious repercussions, right? So if you look around the woodlands here in the Northeast, you can, especially in the fall, um, you can see where a plant is, has escaped cultivation, in this case, Euonymus uh, elatus, um, that is now essentially the understory of this entire woodland, and it's still, and still for sale. So how do we navigate all of this stuff? You know, this confetti yarrow situation, you know, it's, it's overwhelming. So how do, how do you determine what to use? I mean, I, I try to, you know, make it digestible, based on performance, so the species, um, which is white, which is great, I use a fair amount, and then when I use cultivars, I mean, it, it, usually just terracotta is, is for me, but it, it, because I know how it's gonna perform, I know what it's gonna do. Um, then I, you know, I had been introduced to some others, and I thought, okay, well, maybe give that a try too. But incredibly durable, right? Where we run into trouble is the sort of the echinacea industrial complex, right? I don't know. Uh, how we're supposed to navigate all of this stuff. I will know that this should be a crime because the name of this one is The Price is White. <laughs> that is not good. Um, it may be a great plant. I don't know it. It's new. I mean, I do know the ones that, that, that perform. What is, what is challenging in some of the projects is you, you spend a lot of time designing and you spend a lot of time vetting you know, those things and like tightening it and tightening it and tightening it. And then you get to the installation phase and um, you ask, for something and they show up with something else and, and you say, wait, no, we needed Eryngium yuccifolium, which is on the left, and uh, they show up with Eryngium blue hobbit or Eryngium planum or one of like the blue there, that's at Bill and Dennis's. Um, and, and you say, no, no, we needed the other one and they say, what's the difference? Well, I mean, I can explain it, but that gets a little challenging. I mean, I, the, the point is that generally speaking, I know I can always grow the one on the left and the ones on the right, uh, not always. Right, so they were selected, and then there's you know differences in scale and et cetera. So, same thing here. This is another project. I had Silphium terebinthinaceum on the schedule, which is this large basal foliage, really dramatic with these flower spikes, but it sits there. And they showed up with Cilium perfoliatum, which is an angry thug, right? That will take over your your garden. Um, and the same question: What's the difference, right? So, okay, you want a Taiwan blue magpie, right? and someone shows up and gives you a crow, right? <laughs> Your expectations have not been met, right? These are both technically crows, but different, right? So what's the difference? That, it is a process of getting people to understand um, that there is you know, a, a greater level of intent than might be apparent. And so when you find things, this was like shopping with a client up in Maine, when you find things that work for you, it's great to, or that you wish more people were growing, it's great to buy them so that they'll keep doing that. Right, to, you're helping to create a market for plants that are appropriate. Landscapes, this was just one haul on, on one day for a client who wanted to fill in this little space. Um, and if you, you know, she was introduced to Leatris ligulostylus, which if you have this plant, any monarch that's in your neighborhood will be on this plant before it's on any other, even on any other Leatris. It's an extraordinary magnet for that particular pollinator. So. It's, but it's very different than Leatris microcephala, right, which is a very small plant. Ligulostylus can be this tall and, you know, microcephala is like that tall. So you can start exploring different genera uh, for, for different effects, right? Um, a really big believer in the, in the mountain mint group, the, all the pycnanthemums. This is pelosum that was there that day. 
Um, usually in like a project, I could have up to six or seven taxa of this, of this genus, really successful, and a, and a pollinator ma uh, machine. Um, so these were all just things that we picked up that day that she then integrated to her garden. And she became enamored of certain things. This, is a, this particular phlox, again, more than any other phlox's gena, uh, will be your, your um, swallowtail magnet. And so when we were looking for plant inspiration, we're, you know, a lot of times we're dealing with wholesale nurseries that are um, sensitive about what they grow and uh, are, you know, put d displays and trials together so you can evaluate things, not just once, but over time. So this is at North Creek Nurseries in, in Pennsylvania. Um, I'm, re I'm a big fan of that big grass, the giant sacaton there. But just sort of different combinations. There it is in, the, in later fall, um, Sporobolus ridei. Uh, the, uh, all the Muhlenbergias here, there's the pink Muhlenbergia under the Sparabolus there. That's what it looks like in the fall. But there's a cultivar here that I think is really intriguing. This is white cloud, and I think it almost looks like rain in, you know, sunlight in the rain, right? This sort of glowing mist. And this blooms for six weeks, eight weeks, but really dramatic backdrop for this other material. Uh, but I think not, it's important to point out that not all grasses are the same. Uh, they they use, get, get used interchangeably, but they're not interchangeable. So if you've got one that's flopping over, like in these different varieties of schizocurium, your soil's too rich. And so, you know, these are things that generally thrive on, on, on neglect. Um, and, but some of the newer cultivars, like standing ovation, are more tolerant of, you know, kind of uh, richer soils. Uh, nurseries that are local are important. You know, here's Jim Glover, who's here in Kutchog. Um, he, a lot of his stuff he knows, the pro, or a fair amount anyway, he knows the provenance of that material. He knows where the seed was collected. He collects Long Island ecotypes, uh, including that, that uh, hibiscus, the palustrous form of hibiscus mashudos, which I got years ago for the High Line, but put it up on the, where the little wetland planters are. Um, you can get, find these inspiration in gardens. You know, here's Lisa Roper's uh, step planting at uh, Chanticleer in, in Pennsylvania. Really extraordinary planting, but growing in very sharp drainage, gravelly. Some of the, the groups that we're mining, we're doing for a couple of reasons in mind, not just performance, but also resistance to deer. Right? And there's no, there's no single answer uh, for that. Um, everyone's deer is different, and I've had them out here at a project in North Fork where they're eating stuff that is technically poisonous and still, still kind of cruising right along. So the mint family found, generally speaking, is one that they leave alone more often than others. And you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. So all of these plants are in play uh, at, at these projects where deer is involved. And then you can take that genus and pull it apart so you get like a single, no, well, these are now different genera. It used to be all aster, but now it's Eurebia and Symphiotrichum. But you can have a, a rotation of flowering moments that go from midsummer almost take you to Thanksgiving with this sort of sequence of different species. A lot of, you know, these things are kind of hiding in plain sight, but um, Parthenium here with, uh, with hay-scented fern, the deer have not yet messed with. Monarda bradburiana, which is a, sort of a drier to tolerant uh, Monarda. That one is, again, left alone, mint family again. And we're looking at uh, ecological inspiration. So the things like the Virginia rose, Rosa virginiana, here growing out of a route out, outcrop in Northeast Harbor, Maine. Pretty simple flower, but great fall color, growing in almost nothing. And right nearby is the Campanula rotundifolia, growing in maybe three inches of soil in the cracks between um, these Seal Harbor bluffs. So that's a recurrent theme for me. So in, in, in 
traveling in ecological, different ecological areas, kind of pulling lessons from those places. Uh, when I first started working on the High Line with the James Corner Field Operations, the Parks Department, PDOTOF, um, they, were, they had a different birch in mind for the part of the High Line. And so when I recommended gray birch, it was largely the memory of driving through the New England roads, watching gray birch kind of sticking out between these rocks, crevices. So we'll get well, it's a little foreshadowing there. Um, things that you can find just above the salt line uh, in, are, turned out to be incredibly um, successful landscape plants like the Vernonia. And for particularly in Long Island's case, you know, the, the coastal plain or the sand plain is an incredible laboratory for uh, where you can find plants. So here on a Quansu farm in, in Martha's Vineyard, this is one view, largely Solidago odora, little blue stem. So if you stand there and if you just pan your head to the right, it becomes, uh, now it's no longer Solidago, it's Euthamia graminifolia, or the grass leaf goldenrod. Very, very fine texture. But just check out that pattern of little blue stem, uh, some sumac, uh, some Arctostaphylus. It's pretty, pretty elegant. And then in the fall, you know, you get another moment. So it, this was at Polly Hill Arboretum on Martha's Vineyard, and I was giving a lecture, and I was talking about this meadow, and people are just kind of rolling their eyes, thinking, yeah, it's just, you know, we have a lot of those. And I said, well, you know, it's more interesting than that. Like, if you go out and look now in August, you can see that, or at the time it was August, that all of these things were blooming. Leatrus scariosa, Baptisia tinctoria, Pycnanthum tenufolium, Aslepius tuberosa. And so that's pretty good for, for late summer, right? And then, but I was more interested in the green plant, the broadleaf plant. Um, and so I waited till the fall and I got on a cold ferry and went back for this, right? It's uh, Ruscopolinum a variety latifolium, and because it's in the sand, it's really kind of compact, and it's also been cut from time to time. But very dramatic fall color, bulletproof plant, and you get this sort of changing tone, then it's sunlight or shade or shadow, becomes more matte and richer, or becomes bright and glossy like that. So people try to do that with things like little blue stem, and I mean, I'm starting a little bit, uh, lowbush blueberry, and as a result, they kill a lot of lowbush blueberry, right? So you need the cultural um, component to make these things work. Other things, which are native right around the corner, like this is a Long Island woodland here out east, uh, post oak and with a ground, a ground plane of um, uh, Comptonia and uh, Huckleberry. Uh, taking those things and moving them into the landscape is, is a little easier than, than a lot of these other things that have cultural requirements, right? You get a pretty dramatic foliage texture from that one. Uh, in the Midwest, you know, the prairies are richer and more floristic. Um, which is great, but these are all durable plants in, for the east. You know, there are lots of inspiration in those remnant prairies. Uh, this is all sort of naturally occurring there. Even textures as simple as this willow and mountain combination looked really interesting to me. And we were out collecting this when, uh, in the Iowa prairie here of um, some more diminutive forms of, uh, of little blue stem. But all of that then leads to different, you know, people will take that and pull it apart, right? So uh, that's Renzo Piano, Debbie was discussing, his part of the Art Institute. Uh, and then uh, Pete Odolf with Augustafson Nickel uh, did this uh, Lurie Garden. So it's not a prairie, but it has prairie components and sort of inspired by that. So there's exotic plants like the salvia, native plants like the Amsonias, and then as you get into the prairie, the, you know, this is where, where that, that dynamic character comes from. It's like one thing following another thing, following another thing over time, and the remnant elements of what was blooming, for example, like the seed heads of the echinacea become part of the show. And in the fall, you get tones on the Amsonia and the Panicum, and et cetera, and little, and little moments like the gentian. 
Oh, so the High Line, uh, you may have heard of it. Uh, we, uh, an adventure, getting all of these things on the bridge. Um, you know, it's still amazing to me that people are sitting under this tra track having, you know, fabulous lunches, uh, given, given what it was uh, before that. Um, but the southern end of the park is this woodland. Um, Dillard's Cofidio Renfro with this lovely slow stare, you know, where there's this pause moment where these long walks to the steps kind of make it easier to climb up your 30 feet. But you have this moment where you pop through the bridge, right? And it started pretty humbly, right? With smaller material, these, all of this section, you know, that's all 18 inches of soil, so not very much. And uh, they adapt to the space. And when the tracks are back, they're back where they were, or when they are there. Um, there's a mix in the ground plane, sort of a herbaceous ground plane, right? And De uh, Debbie Munson sent me this. This is, I thought was interesting. So if you look up in that corner, that's one that I saved. The orange is Emelanchier, the gold is um, gray birch, and that's a different animal there in the corner. And it was because when, during the planting, a river birch got snuck in there by mistake. And uh, there, one said, well, should we cut it down? It's like, no, we're going to leave it because that was the original intention for that part of the park, to have river birch, which I just thought was too big. And so that was the idea of getting something that was in scale that would be a better fit over time, right? So it's like a living example of the differences in scale. And so you have these dramatic moments, like looking back toward the Whitney, or in the fall, you get the cotinus coloring up, and then the winter, it's still a winter landscape. And at a, at a child scale, it's a place that, that you know, they're able to explore in the city that makes them feel like they're somewhere else, just change in perspective. And all that dynamic, dynamic activity is coming out of that much soil, right? So you can see the voids there, it's a half meter, all of that in that space. So just to give you a sense of, of, of the attainability of this sort of approach, that um, this is what Pete would call a matrix planting. Uh, the, the perennials are grouped in their areas, and then the grasses are you know, functionally a ratio that are woven through, this, through the spaces. So this is one section uh, in Chelsea, 18th to 19th, 20th Street, uh, over the course of one calendar year. So these are the plants. I, I still, I have never seen echinacea in the jade in the trade here which is too bad because it's a really, really good cultivar, so, but more of a European selection. So spring, the first, this fall of 2008, now this is spring 2009, getting into May, into June, later June, now we're in July, late August. So that's one calendar year, about an inch and a half, I'm sorry, foot and a half on center planting, um, pretty dramatic results. So what's nice about that herbaceous layer is that it's like this hand that distracts people while your woody stuff is kind of taking time to evolve. And then, you know, into the winter, people kept. So, to point about that sort of dynamic character, this is all of that activity coming out of that half meter of soil. And if you keep your eye on the, uh, the Monarda there, right, that was the, the, the cutting point between the first and second section. It's still, all of that stuff is still there. Now, not everything works, right? So uh, the Hellenium, which is really beautiful, uh, what didn't, didn't really enjoy that experience so much, and so we, we replanted some and moved some around. The Rudbeckia was too successful. You know, but Pete was there one time, and I said, you know, it's weird, you're not, you're not like that big a yellow guy, there's still a lot of yellow, and he just kind of looked at him and he said, you're right, let's take it out. So he just started pulling, pulling it out, so not, not too precious about it. Um, you know, in the early fall, this kind of mixing up the sumac taxa here at 14th Street, we actually redesigned this, um, this, bed, this bed to be more like the one on the other side, which was pretty successful. But you know, talking people into starting small is not easy. So if you, I don't know if you can see it, but in between those chaise lounges are very small sumacs in, in a short, short order. 
they do that, right? Plants grow. So if you, if you mix up the taxa, you get different textures in the foliage, you get different you know, elements of fall color, you get different scale, and uh, so it's the same rhythm with different twist, right? Uh, for the second section, there was a canopy, there is a canopy walk. Uh, originally, the plant that was going to be selected there was too small to make the scale of, of being real canopy experience. And so my, my goal was really to say, well, if you make a Venn diagram of what's a plant that can live in this cultural condition, which is in between two buildings, pretty shady, and what are, has really interesting foliage and overlap them, um, what came to mind to me were North American big leaf magnolias. And so there are a number of species of them. Um, we had macrophylla, ash eye, and tripetala. Uh, if I had found Fraser eye, we would in Fraser eye, but I couldn't, we couldn't find it. And these were really hard to source, and we so I called in a lot of favors around the country just trying to get these plants. And then mixed in a functionally evergreen form of Magnolia virginiana. This cultivar is green shadow in this case. And again, you can see from the scale there, you know, these were not enormous plants when they went in. So humbly, now in the fall of, of 2010, um, these plants are going in. The, so the soil had frozen. There was a frozen cap we had to break open to get the plants in. So, and those plants had been sitting above ground all summer. So not a happy start. And yet, you know, in time, that was the first spring, they started climbing up. Now these have also had several sequences of scaffolding over the top of them, breaking them and dropping things on them, and they're still persisting, right? So the goal was to have this big, tr almost tropical feeling foliage in people's faces to sort of challenge their idea of what a tree in New York City could be like. And deciduous, so you get fall color, but then you can see the, the, um, the Magnolia virginiana holding its color there. It's already snowed and it's still foliage is still there. And um, this always entertain me, entertains me when people pick up the, the big leaves and then take them away and they talk to each other like they're looking at bananas or something. <laughs> Uh, and it, so we did a, a flower show, uh, the Philly flower show was outdoors this year, and we did an installation for them and, and uh, got a bunch of big leaf magnolias and just kind of watched people gawking at them, just a really unusual plant. But that, you know, it's sort of the point. You want people to take something away with them and hopefully perpetuate that in a way uh, that makes life more diverse than it, than it, it, it tends to be. Um, Working, you know, following, following the rules, not the rules that we make, right, but the rules that the plants make. Um, here, using seedling sources of sassafras, starting pretty small, that's a whip, right? You see the guys putting stuff in there. Again, that's going into a half meter of soil, and it, it managed to jump up there, the Zaha Hadid's building. Um, when her studio did the rendering for that building, they put a red hibiscus plant photoshopped in the shot. They didn't think this was ornamental enough. So the advantage of using seedlings, there's a couple. One is, in this plant's dioecious, meaning there's male and female plants, um, and that means you can get fruits. And to my mind, there's no more dramatic fruit uh, in the native realm than the sassafras. And it's usually so showy that the birds usually get to it before you can take this picture. But here, this is on the, the west side of Manhattan. And because they're seedlings, you get seedling variability. And so in a single fall, this was the variability of all the different fall color forms in that, that one section. Okay, and so people are now out of the canopy, they're in the meadow, and then they're considering you know, tall, bold perennials. Um, so this Midwestern shrub that underappreciated morphokinescence in the summer and fall. But it's, in addition to being a habitat for humans, it's a habitat for wildlife, right? So you have seeds for the seed-eating birds, you have fruits for the fruit-eating birds, 
Um, there is uh, shelter in, in those plantings. And this is just one, or an array of some plants. These are all taken on the High Line in the first summer. Um, you know, an active landscape. So in this one section, 16th Street, you know, you have the spur that you don't go in, you just look, you look down on. And I was walking there one day and I had my badge on and some, there's a father and mother and two kids and the guy's waving me over and he looked really concerned and I thought he had dropped something off of the bridge. And he said, and he does this with his hands, he goes, where's the sensor? I can't find the sensor. I said, what? He said, where's the sensor? Like every time I do this, I can hear it. I go, no, it's not a sensor, those are crickets. It's just crickets. And he said, oh, where do you get your crickets? I'm like, no, you don't, you don't get crickets. They just came, he's like, oh, I don't think that's right. You know, I don't know if those kids were homeschooled, but I think of them from time to time. Because that was like 10 years ago, like, where, where, where are they doing now? Um, Bethlehem Steel, you know, it, uh, this is uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, the old steel plant. Uh, very limited plantings, a little, little wilder, there's the American snowbell there. Um, and the idea was these, these, these aren't integrated into the bridge uh, like the High Line is. These are, these are, this was with WRT, by the way. Um, these are trays, essentially, that hover, and the bins that provided all the steel-making material are below, and so we kept the vegetation coming up and then mimicked it to go down, right? So by mixing up, again, that tax of sumac, one has got to be fall before the others have turned red. Um, this is in the Rose Kennedy Greenway in Boston on Atlantic Street, so if you know that part by the wharf, very busy street. Uh, this was a landscape that had failed, and so they wanted a very inexpensive, and I mean this was a very inexpensive fix, can plant a foot and a half on center, and that's the second spring. So in the first summer, you could see through to all the tour buses, the duck boats, and all that. Um, and the idea was that the plants would be, not, not all native, they're all regionally appropriate. Some are, you know, from Ozarks and Midwest, but mo a lot of the stuff is Eastern native stuff. But the idea was that it was like something that you would pick to give to your mother. It's called mother's walk, not something that was like a, a flower bed, right? And so the idea was that this, these are really robust. And, and there's, there's a lot of sort of urban pressure here. You know, there's a lot of people in the space and there are people, I mean, I found, I found luggage in these plantings. Um, so uh, it's, it's something that has to stand up with, with not a lot of care. So that was successful and they said, well, we have this, this part of the wharf block on the, on, the north, on the south side that is we need to fill in. So, okay, same thing. We reconfigured the shrubs, laid out the plants. This is in April. This is the same summer, right? So you can have this sort of Relay sequence, the clethra uh, on the left there is in bud. Uh, Leatrice is blooming. The Amsonia and Baptiste have already bloomed. And then later in the fall in the same space, Amsonia, Aster, Father Gill, the fall color. So we took the same thing. This was with Reed Hildebrand. They worked out here outside. Um, worked with them a lot. So uh, this was the, the carousel block. Uh, we did the beds around that. And again, this was just in the first summer and getting into the fall. So when you have these plants meet each other, there's resilience in that, right? You, you, there's no gaps to walk through. There's no gaps to be exploited by weeds. And if you lose any one thread, you haven't lost the garment. Um, so I'll wrap up with a few here. This was in Long Island. Uh, this is on the North Fork, an amazing property that, right to the bluff, down to the water. And it's just a part of the island that on this point turns slightly west, so the sunset's always in this view. And I, I think I photographed this particular black cherry tree more than any other single item in my life. There's like a thousand pictures of this tree. But it was, port, it was part of the show to maintain 
as many trees as we could, even though we're just successional trees that are wind whipped. So it was Eastern red cedar and black cherry and uh, um, white oak, post oak. And when we did that, I came one day, we, the gates had been locked and the contractor forgot to, to leave the, he, he used the wrong padlock. So I had to walk up to, to get something from the site. And because I walked up, I didn't spook this owl. Look closely in that branch, right? So it's not just this sort of framing view. To me, the, the view of the water is less interesting without the tree, right? Because then it's just a broad, you know, sort of a broad coastal view, but this sort of framing structure is also habitat, right? So this is the view down. Architects here are um, so ill and uh, Carl Shenton, and we, we think we only lost two trees in this entire process. That's one of the boys. Um, we had to build this hill back up to make the terrace, which you'll see in a second. And kind of anchoring that steep slope, which we built, uh, with grasses, a mixture of grasses in here in the fall. And it's punctuated with different blooming plants. But the, you know, so light becomes part of the discussion here, right? With, especially when the, when the grasses are flowering. And by taking, when you're dealing with cultivars of panicum, for example, or switchgrass, by mixing them up, you get different tones in the fall, right? So the red here is rustler bush. Uh, the, the plant in the medium is in the middle there is um, Shenandoah, which hasn't, hasn't done its thing yet, but would, would be burgundy instead of red. So, and then the stone is from a quarry in Connecticut, and it's a, it's a dark colored granite, and every once in a while you get a, uh, a band of quartz in it. And so the, the stone, we, we, we had them custom cut. These are one by three planks. And so we spun them to kind of make those slashes look, look sort of painted. There's my youngest client. So the other mixture, warm season grass in the Sparabolus, cool season grass in Molinia. You get an earlier start from the cool season grasses. So it, it gives you a little bit more of a relay to, toward fall through the summer. Here's the front right after planting. It's a single Acer griseum there. Um, the planks, those are also custom cut. Those are two by seven planks, the really grand um, planks to the entrance, I'm sorry. And that, that's it in the first fall, or almost fall, the, the tree hasn't colored up yet. And then this was last night, here, late, late yesterday. Uh, green roof, so like how achievable is this? Uh, it's a 17-foot square that's in the middle of that, of that cruciform structure. So not a lot of plants, temporary irrigation, so it was only watered for the first year. And then it's getting into fall here, and then this was the following spring. All no irrigation here. It's a mixture of that Vernonia and Aster and uh, Mountain Mint. And then my client sent this picture this spring saying, hey, take a look. This is what, look how big they are now. So it, you know, this is something we'll, we'll kind of monkey with the gaps here a little bit. Um, but it is a, a successful roof with, with no irrigation in seven inches, six and seven inches of media, depending on where you are. Um, so the, the, the wrapping up with like, how do we do plants? These are, these are diverse plantings. Uh, sourcing is a challenge. Sourcing during COVID is a grander challenge. Um, the good news with herbaceous is it, it makes up quickly, um, but it is not the expertise of a lot of contracting groups that I've worked with. It, it's something that they're less, you know, more comfortable with hardscape, more comfortable with trees and other woody plants, uh, less comfortable with uh, nuanced herbaceous material, which is understandable. Like there's a substantial amount of construction in the other direction. Um, so in this case, this is um, unirrigated plantings in the Berkshires, nine months from installation. So they were, went in late fall. This is the outdoor shower there in the meadow. But this was a single day in, in July that, you know, nine months later, it's pretty, it's pretty good. The fire pit, there's a dining pavilion there. 
and the, and the entry pavilion. Uh, this architect, this is no, uh, no architecture. Um, there are six rectangle pavilions arranged in a wreath with a courtyard in the center. But we, we, there's a lot of drainage issues on the site, so we made drainage swales. So this is actually, this is a swale where that orange flower is. And it leads around the house. So they can be, you know, more aesthetic in addition to being utilitarian. And, and as we get further to the agricultural fields, uh, it becomes looser. Again, we're still in the first year here. And then this was just, I, I stopped on the way down here um, to check in and, uh, you know, things were moving along a little better. And then we, in, the, in the, bound, the boundary between the garden and the landscape, which is an amazing borrowed landscape of agricultural fields, this we sowed buckwheats, and now the buckwheats in bloom, right? You, so you can do that as a rotation and help to kind of remediate your soil while getting the sort of dramatic sequence of things germinates really quickly. Um, and during COVID, I've been working remotely uh, from Maine, all the, our architecture studio, everybody kind of went uh, remote. And so it tragic, tragic strategically, I have a couple of projects up there or more than a couple now. Um, and so this is one client who, out, you know, outside we built a woodland edge landscape on their approach that used some of those same plants that we talked about coming up, right? So this is in the deer zone. And then inside her, her fenced in garden, she still gets to play and that's where um, and she's a very, very keen gardener, um, where we're just kind of adding, mixing in plants, like that same campanula. But when you, when you buy it, a lot of times you're buying in a condition that it, it didn't want to be in. This is a too rich condition coming from the nursery, so it had to be kind of stripped out of all of that peaty um, media and put into the more gravelly mix. Um, hybrid Aruncus with uh, Gelenia become one of her favorites, and so now, you know, these plants um, that were added to the plants that she was using over, you know, 30 years um, are now part of her sort of cut sequence for inside the house. Lilium's prim. And then these are some of the plants from that shopping trip, right? And when you can't, when you can't get some of the things that you want, um, you have to be creative, right? So in this case, I ordered uh, landscape plugs from a friend of mine in New Jersey, uh, James Brown, New Moon Nursery and had um, my contractor, who's a great guy up in Maine, um, hold them, right? So we bumped them up into uh, two quart and three quart pots, and they did this in six weeks. So there, there's what the plugs look like. There's 50 to a tray. They get shipped to you UPS. You get two per box, right? So you show up one day and there's 40 boxes outside. And um, they, they plant very quickly, and they make up really quickly. And again, there's the Leatris Ligostylis and the Monarchs were just in that one day on the nursery benches were all around. A little skittish with me there, but. So, outside last night, is everything gonna be all right? I think so. I think so. Thank you for your time. <laughs>